0: Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with the living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Mark Horn, author of Tarot and the Gates of Light. Mark's book details a Kabbalistic method of using the tarot as a meditative tool during a Jewish ritual known as Counting the Omer which takes place between the holidays of Passover and Pentecost. Mark draws from a variety of the world's wisdom traditions to guide readers through a path of spiritual and psychological cleansing. We discuss all of this as well as the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, grounding spirituality in this world, and the necessity of community and spiritual practice. Mark Horn is the author of Tarot and the Gates of Light, a Kabbalistic Path to Liberation. He studied uh, Kabbalah with academic, rabbinic, and practical teachers in organizations ranging from the highly respected to the highly unorthodox. He has also studied Tarot with many of today's most respected authorities on the subject, including Rachel Pollack, Mary Greer, and Robert Place. Myth and sacred story have always been central to Mark's spiritual path, and he uses both as a performing storyteller and a Tarot guide. He applies his understanding of the archetypes and sacred stories from all traditions to the individual spiritual path of clients as they are revealed in readings. His fiction has appeared in the anthology Charmed Lives, Gay Spirit and Storytelling, and he has written feature articles for the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and Metro Source. Mark, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio.
1: Thank you, happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm very happy to have you here today. Uh, I First, I wanted to congratulate you on your book, uh, Tarot and the Gates of Life. I've read a few books on Tarot and uh, Kabbalah, and quite often they tend towards the, uh, shall we say, the inscrutable, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but but I found your book to be very accessible. It's incredibly well-written and deeply personal. Uh, You draw deep from your own spiritual journey to inform this work, but it's never narcissistic. Um, That's not the point here. It's just to elicit um, examples. Uh, And you also take a very different approach to Tarot and Kabbalah, which I appreciate and want to explore. But first, let's start with you. Uh, You have a very interesting spiritual journey. The book begins with you saying that you left Judaism the day after your bar mitzvah, and you end up going back to it. Um, So what was this journey like?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I walked away from Judaism the day after my Bar mitzvah because even at 13, I knew I was gay. And in the mid 1960s, that was not really very acceptable in any major faith tradition in the United States. So I decided it was important that I find a spiritual path that uh, accepted my love as sacred because even though at 13, I had yet to actually have any experience Um, I had a sense that, you know, this was that the love is a sacred thing. And, uh, and that I wanted to see if there were a path that uh, recognized the way that I wanted to love as a sacred path. Uh, So I went off in search and found myself in, you know, reading all of the things that people do, Uh, you know, I, I studied mythology, I studied Buddhism, I, you know, got into tarot, I got into, I mean, I ended up chanting with the Guru Maharaji people for a little while. I guess, after all, it was the uh, uh, mid to late 60s, and uh, all of this stuff was happening.
0: And uh, you, you explored Buddhism for a while, too. Uh, you describe yourself as a, I guess the term the kids are using these days is a jubu, correct? Oh,
1: well, I don't know if the kids are using it, but <laughs> I think that uh, Roger Kamenitz, when he, he wrote The Jew and the Lotus, oh, okay, uh, 90s, uh, he was already using the term back then, um, and uh, this was a book about how uh, a number of uh, American rabbis went to meet with the Dalai Lama mm. to sort of figure out why all of these young Jews were going to Buddhism. Mm. And, um, and so the, 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 this book was uh, about that dialogue. It was very rich, and, mm. and I actually ended up studying with every one of those rabbis in that book.
0: Oh, wonderful. Very good. And you still incorporate, you've, you've since returned to Judaism and what led you back? If I understand correct, it was this introduction to Kabbalah, right?
1: Well, not really. I mean, I, I, you know, I, when I started, I started learning a very little bit about Kabbalah when I was 16 and got my first tarot deck. Okay. Uh, but like you I found everything written on the subject uh, highly inscrutable mm-hmm. and I decided that it was not necessary if I wanted to study tarot and I'd walked away from Judaism anyway so goodbye right mm-hmm. and um, you know but then I had uh, I said I got deeply into Judaism I, I'm sorry into into Buddhism I was living in Japan and had found uh, Vipassana Buddhism mm-hmm. which is actually Southeast Asian and uh, really started going on retreats very regularly, so regularly that I started in fact to learn Pali, which is the uh, language of the Buddha. And I found myself laughing in the middle of one such retreat thinking, how is it that I couldn't bring myself to learn, you know, biblical Hebrew, but now I'm learning, you know, the precursor language to Hindi, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? You know, it, it was bizarre to me, but it was also, you know, a very extraordinary experience. And the deeper I got in Buddhism, Oddly enough, the more I felt that my soul at rock bottom was Jewish hmm. and that I needed to explore this. Um, so I, I spoke to a friend of mine who was on, had been on a similar journey, but she had come back to Judaism. She showed me some uh, prayer books. Uh, and she said, just look at these prayers, the translations in English. And I said, oh, these look like meditation instructions. And she said, yeah, right? You know, hmm. but I said, I don't know any rabbis who teach it. That way. And she said, I, I live in North Carolina, and I did. So you live in New York. And you should be able to find some rabbis who get this. Mm-hmm. So I went off in search. And uh, that's how I actually got back into Kabbalah on the Jewish side. Okay. Um, and with uh, Jewish teachers who um, weren't about making it inscrutable, uh, but really having uh, it, because, and, and there are a lot of reasons that. Historically, that it is written about in ways that make it dense and complicated and secretive, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, there's no reason for that anymore. And um, and this is immense, an immensely practical. Um, uh, what I'll even call is, is a philosophy of how the world works, and and really how all of creation happens. Uh, and uh, when I started to learn it with the rabbis, then I realized, oh wait a minute, I can. this back with the tarot now uh, in a way that I hadn't before. And because I was learning it in relationship, uh, learning Kabbalah in relationship to Jewish practice, I realized that all of the Kabbalistic writing from the tarot world were from people who didn't have this Jewish experience, so that there were certain practices that they were just unaware of. Uh, particularly, the practice that my book is about, which is counting the Omer, is a traditional Jewish practice with a deep Kabbalistic uh, uh, part of it that y- you do for 49 days. And um, you know, there weren't, there was no reference to it in any Tarot books anywhere. I thought this is an important practice. It's something that, if people do it, I, I mean, I did it before, actually. Uh, connecting it with tarot. And I found it a profound experience that took me uh, deep within and helped open up uh, doors that uh, were closed in my soul and, and just uh, just it was beautiful, beautiful thing to do. And um, I thought, okay, let's see if we can do this with tarot. So I, I did it uh, myself for several years, writing about it uh, in a blog that I used to have called Another Queer Jewish Buddhist. Uh, because there are so many of us, in fact, Uh, you know, starting with Allen Ginsberg, for example. But, uh, you know, I realized as I was writing about it, this was a book. So I uh, decided that's what I would do. And that's where the, that's the genesis of the book and how I sort of came back to
0: Judaism and how I got
1: back into Kabbalah and put it all together.
0: Okay, wonderful. And, you know, you used a phrase in the book, which I really appreciated, I, you know, I too have been exploring Tarot since I was 16. You know, before we began uh, recording here, I told you, you know, that I also was a gay 16-year-old, very closeted gay 16-year-old when I purchased my first uh, Tarot deck. And I've read them off and on for years. It was a few years ago. Uh, As I was finishing up my dissertation, I just felt called to revisit Tarot or to get deeper into it. And I knew that there were these connections with uh, Kabbalah and the other Western esoteric traditions. And the way I was thinking about it is, okay, I'm going to use the Tarot as a book to study these things. But the the wording that you used, which I think was way more appropriate, is that there are esoteric flashcards. So there is this history between Tarot and Kabbalah, but I want to kind of take a step back, uh, especially for any listener who's not really familiar with all of this. And I'm going to hit you up with some of the big questions here, okay. <laughs> which is, you know, if someone is unfamiliar with both Tarot and Kabbalah, how, how do you explain them? What are they?
1: Oh, well, um, start with Kabbalah. Sure. Uh, and say it, it is the Jewish mystical tradition. Every uh, religious tradition has a mystical strain and Kabbalah is the Jewish version of that. Um, that's the five second e- explanation. Uh, Tarot um, is, um, a card game that uh, developed out of uh, 14th, 15th century Italy. And over time, uh, somehow got connected to a divination. And, uh, and then historically, over the centuries, uh, really a lot of study and work went into making it a, an extraordinary tool of self-examination. Not merely a divination, but a way to examine one's own soul, and uh, and then you know then there's the question of how did Kabbalah and tarot come together? Um, there are a lot of sort of uh, historical clues that one can follow back. One of the reasons my book is uh, titled Tarot and the Gates of Light uh, is because there was a uh, a Kabbalistic treatise uh, written in the 13th century um, by a very famous rabbi, uh, about the Sephiroth, sort of a a Kabbalistic concept. And it was determined by a scholar, uh, Ronald Decker, I believe, in his book, The Esoteric Tarot, he was actually able to trace in uh, the very first book of divinatory meanings of the tarot minor arcana, phrases that came straight from gates of light. Mm. So now, how did this person who wrote this book come to these phrases because he didn't speak Hebrew uh, or Latin as far as we know. Uh, And he said that he learned this from a traveling Italian. Uh, So this is shrouded in mystery. Uh, Although uh, what I will say is that right now I I am spending a lot of time studying um, the history of the the great houses of the Renaissance, the Medici, the Sforza, the Visconti, because uh, all of them had Uh, employed scribes and artists. And in their workshops of scribes and artists, um, there were Hebrew scribes. Mm. Because all of these families owned Kabbalistic manuscripts. And in these very same workshops, people were producing tarot cards. So I think, I have no proof, there's no smoking gun yet. Uh, But I, I have to think that There were people in these workshops who looked at these two systems and said, oh, we could put them together. And in fact, if you wanted to study the Kabbalistic system with flashcards, you could actually use the tarot with certain symbols that are connected to the Kabbalah and make it a a, a sort of a system of learning these Kabbalistic concepts. Is that what happened? We have absolutely no smoking gun proof but it looks pretty good.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting, and I would very much look forward to the fruits of your research on that. Um, I know that some of the decks are, I think some of the earliest decks that have figures, aren't they based on some of these families, or at least that was one of the rumors that I've read.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. so some of the families, uh, you know, like the, the images in there, they portraits of the people in the family. Mm-hmm. Remember, they use right. these uh, cards for games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, is why some of them aren't really in the best condition today. But they were also, like almost all of the art of that time, allegorical. So, uh, you know, there were cards which were figures, uh, and this is the Renaissance, so they were bringing back in uh, mythology. but you know, you had uh, the the virtues, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, fortitude, strength, uh, temperance, and, and these are all tarot cards, right? But they made them into cards in this deck. Um, there's a lot of um, research by uh, Robert Place on, on this subject uh, related to that.
0: Very interesting. Um, uh, to dig a little bit deeper, uh, you used a term, and I, and this is central to your book, and I want to make sure that everyone is familiar uh, with what this means, sephirot. Mm-hmm. So I think that to understand that, we have to dig into the tree of life. So um, can you explain the what tree I, of life and the I, sephirot?
1: What I tell everybody who I do readings for, and I, I just finished a reading a half an hour ago. Um, and what I say to everyone is, are you familiar with the chakra system? Mm-hmm. Because almost everybody is. And I say, well, if you were to overlay the tree of life on the chakra system, you would notice that the top um, sephira, which is the singular, uh, in the in the on the tree of life, is called Keter, and it means crown. And if you and and it is meant to be overlaid on the human body, it's right at the top of the head. Uh, Tiferet is at the space of the heart chakra, and it is the heart. Uh, So all of these um, are really about, one way of looking at them is about energy centers in the body and how the energy flows from the divine straight through us into manifestation. And all of these sefirot are sort of, each of them has a different job, as it were, of sort of transforming this energy. Another metaphor I use is that, uh, that of the power plant. Uh, if you were to uh, sort of touch a wire coming out of a power plant, uh, you would be electrocuted in a minute. So we have all of these transformers all along the way, which step the energy down so that when you plug in your lamp to the socket in your home, it is usable, right? And it's you're not going to die. And it's not going to blow up. So the wrote are kind of like step-down transformers uh, from the divine energy through us so that it can actually work through us. And um, except, of course, all of us, you know, the energy gets blocked in different ways, in, in the ways in our experience and in our Uh, in our various uh, incarnations, because uh, many people are surprised to know this, but in uh, mystical Judaism in Kabbalah, reincarnation is just a given, right? We all come back life after life and and we're working through, not really very different from Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, you're going to also carry some of this, to use a word from uh, another tradition, karmic energy uh, in the sefirot. Uh And when I do a Tree of Life reading for people, I am looking at how that energy moves through them and where it's blocked and what they can do to sort of restore the flow.
0: And the the Tree of Life and the sefirot, uh, so you're saying that it's... Um, It's this divine energy that's flowing through the body, but it's also flowing through all of creation as well, correct?
1: This is, you can think of the diagram of the tree of life um, as like the double helix of DNA. Mm -hmm. And when you see the the diagram of the tree of life on a flat piece of paper, it is flat, but it is not flat. It is a, you know, three-dimensional thing. Um, And within each sefirah, there are there is another whole tree within it and ad infinitum all the way down and all the way up mm-hmm. it is a sort of philosophy of the fractal nature of reality mm-hmm. and how and really sort of connects to the hermetic dictum as above so below because all of these systems are reflections of each other and uh, so that uh, when you study the universe uh, or physics, really the tree of life is very much a part of that. Uh, And uh, there's a, uh, the the Kabbalistic creation story uh, is uh, how the divine, which is uh, referred to as Ain Sof, that is the endless no thing, because like the Christian via negativa, the divine, I, I don't like to use the word God very much because we have a concept about that. The divine is beyond concept, beyond the ability to think. We cannot name it, we cannot describe it. But as the energy from that flows into manifestation, where was I going with this? Um,
0: well, we were talking about the fractal nature of- I was,
1: I was actually talking about creation itself.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, 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 I'm sorry, yes, yes. <laughs>
1: so, uh, the very first time, from the the energy flowed from Ain Soph into uh, what became creation, the the sephirot were not in the relationship that you see in the diagram today. Mm. They ran in a straight line. And uh, as I was talking about explaining how, think of them as step-down transformers, well, in this straight line, they couldn't hold the energy. So the sephirot shattered sending sparks of this divine energy throughout all of creation. And Kabbalistically speaking, this is the way 500 years ago, the Rabbi Isaac Luria was describing the Big Bang, right? This is how we understand Kabbalistically how the universe began. But because all of this energy then shattered, what it means is all of the energy that we see everything around us is a piece of the divine that is just broken off. And it is our mission as human beings to work in partnership with the divine to raise these sparks up, to restore them and to restore all of creation to wholeness. And the goal of a Kabbalist is what we call messianic consciousness, which is an understanding and an experience of everything as divine and everything is connected to the whole. Mm
0: -hmm. Very good. And I, uh, you know, I love uh, another way that you describe the Sephiroth in your book, uh, which gets to exactly what you were saying is you refer to them as boundless infinities, Mm -hmm. um, which I just thought was very poetic. The other aspect to all of this- Right, was bounded. Infinity. Oh, bounded. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry.
1: It, it is this paradox.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Thank you for correcting me. Um, uh, uh, so there's also though um, four worlds, right? And uh, can you speak to those there
1: are actually endless worlds. But-
0: okay. <laughs> but there's um, I, I mean, the tree of life is divided. So you've got the top three, um, and I think um, is that Azilut. I, I forget. Yeah, Azilut. And then uh, Bria and Yetzira yes. and as- ASIA How do those four worlds work? What 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 are they representing? Because this is going to feed into the book as well.
1: Well, so there are lots of ways that we can look at what the four worlds
0: mean. Um,
1: Let's just start with tarot for a beginning. Um, you know, there are four suits in the world of tarot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you and they each of them corresponds to one of these worlds. Atzilut is the world that is of emanation that is closest to the divine at the top of the tree. And, and I say use the word top of the tree very guardedly because I, I, I always try to make the uh, point that um, there is no up or down here. Uh, and there is no hierarchy, these are layers of an onion uh, that, is, that are really all one. But we have to be able to talk about it in ways that separate things out because as human beings, that's how we perceive reality. But from the divine point of view, none of this is, exists because it's all one. Uh, so Atsilud is at the top. Uh, then you have a uh, bria, which connects to the world of cups uh, in, in the tarot, um, and then there's um, Yetsira, which connects to the, the suit of swords in tarot, and then uh, Asiya, which connects to the world, this the suit of pentacles. But um, it also connects, if you wanted to look at it from a Jungian point of view, to the four Jungian sort of personality archetypes. Okay. Uh, and uh, in fact, in Jung's own study of Kabbalah, he noted this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and saw all of the parallels to his own understanding of the way consciousness works. And in fact, if you read uh, the great Hasidic teachers uh, of Kabbalah, uh, what you actually come away with is an understanding that for them Kabbalah is sacred psychology. And they are describing not only all of creation, but the way the mind works, mm-hmm. which is no different Then uh, the the Desutimaga, I'm not going to get that right. Uh, It's been so many years. The Abhidhamma uh, in in Buddhism Buddhism, is the great sort of writing, uh, a psychologization of uh, Buddhist thinking. And uh, both of these traditions have this sort of inner psychology, which uh, in Judaism is meant to mirror the intra-psychic processes of the divine.
0: All of this is brought together in Tarot. Now I know that it traditionally in the way the esoteric traditions work, you've got this tree of life with the 10 sephirot and the uh, top uh, the very, and Keter, you know, the crown, those are the aces. And then you have um, uh, it's Hokma, I believe, which are the twos, and Binah, which are threes. And so all of the Sephiroth correspond to one of the numbers. You also connect the uh, court cards uh, in there as well. And all of the Sephiroth sephiro are connected by various paths. And there are 22 paths. And a connection was made between these paths and the Hebrew letters. Mm-hmm. and the major arcana cards. Do yes. I have that right? Yes. So okay. the
1: paths um, between the Sephiroth. You, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is deep Kabbalah it is you know, mm-hmm. going back centuries. And uh, when uh, tarot began to be folded in slowly through the Renaissance, and then the, the uh, European occultists of the uh, uh, early modern era, they uh, connected the major arcana cards to those Hebrew letters. Mm -hmm. Uh, They actually rearranged the letters on the tree. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is one of the differences between European Hermetic Kabbalah and traditional Judaic Kabbalah is that uh, they decided to move some things around because they wanted it to conform to a particular system. And what I tell people is, you know, both of these are simply maps of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can work with either of them. Uh, Because ultimately, when you are working with a map of consciousness, you are going to come to a place where the map fails, because the map is not the territory. And uh, so when you get to that place, that's where you, you know, hopefully find a spirit guide uh, or find, you know, some entity that is going to be able to take you further uh, in this work. Uh, now, I, I realize that all of this that we're talking about may be even, st- even more mystifying to people as, <laughs> as I'm trying to say, this is really simple. You can learn right, it. Right, right. So I, I want to emphasize that the book really takes you through this in a very graduated yes. and simple way uh, because, as you noted earlier on, uh, so many books about this feel inscrutable. Mm-hmm. And it was my goal to make this really accessible and simple. And and sometimes when I talk about it because it excites me so much Mm -hmm. and I love it all. And there are all these correspondences. I will go off and do all of this stuff. and People may say, what? So I I just wanna emphasize once again that the, the book will make this very easy for you.
0: Yeah. And I I just wanted to try to clarify things for people who aren't familiar at all. And I already had decided that I'll post links Mm -hmm. uh, in the podcast and on YouTube to a diagram of the tree of life and the four worlds so that anyone who wants to, they can actually look at it and get a better sense of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, The Sephiroth have I don't know if characteristics or qualities are the right words. Uh, okay, various qualities to each of them. And uh, you give a lot of the keywords words in, in, in the book, which I think is very helpful. So let's now look at sort of the heart of what you're doing, this uh, counting of the Omer. Mm-hmm. And how that, you know, what is that? And how then does that, uh, how do you bring the tarot into that?
1: Okay. So the counting of the Omer, as I say, is, it's a traditional Jewish practice with a Kabbalistic uh, overlay. It is, uh, it is actually a biblical commandment that was based on temple sacrifices from a couple of thousand years ago. Of course, there's no temple today, um, but the, the commandment is still there. And so the Kabbalists said, we can do this in an interior way. And they connected it to the tree of life and the Sephirot. So this is a 49-day practice in between uh, the second day of Passover and the the first day of a holiday called Shavuot, which Christians called Pentecost, which is the 50th day after this 49-day period. And uh, traditionally in in, uh, Jewish practice, if you think about this mythologically, so on the second day of Passover, what's happening? well moses is leading all of the israelites out of egypt and for the next 49 days they are one wand- they go through the red sea they wander through the desert they have their adventures and on the 49th day they find themselves on the on, at the foot of mount sinai where on the 50th day the entire um, group uh, receive a revelation from the divine and we, if you read the 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 this exodus Uh, You know, it actually says, and all of them, you know, saw the sounds and heard the sights, as it were. It's a synesthesic uh, experience uh, where everybody has this revelation of the divine. And then Moses goes up and gets the 10 commandments. And so the practice, as established by the Kabbalists, was to have everyone who practices this sort of ritually join the journey, so that every day you are pract- you are on the way to Mount Sinai, and the very first day is an experience of the first sefirah that we count from, which is chesed. And chesed is about uh, love and flow and um, benevolence, and it's, it's really the exact feeling that you feel when you're set free, right? you're experiencing the love of the divine and the flow, right, Um, and but you combine it because it's 49 days and you only count with the lower seven sefirot. Mm -hmm. So each week there one sefirah is a theme and then each day you count also one of the other of the lower seven sefirot and you combine them because they have qualities and when you combine these qualities, um, you're actually looking at psychologically and spiritually the way you respond to certain things in life. So let's say, um, you know, this is, let's say it's the second day. And the second day is givura of chesed. And givura uh, can be a number of different qualities. Uh, let's say it is structure. And, uh, and the first uh, sefirah is uh, chesed. Let's look at it as uh, creative flow. But this creative flow is such a divine energy that it is, has no direction. It goes in all directions. It is just flow. So givura actually gives it structure and puts it in a direction. So when you're in the second day, you know, you're, you sit with yourself and you think, okay, how do I actually structure my creative practice? How do I give structure to my spirituality? And where does, my, uh, where does the way I give structure close things down or stop things up? Or where does it break so that it's not really working as it should? So this is every day you're really looking at a combination of these qualities as a way of self-examining your own um, psyche. So that by the time you get to the 49th day, it's almost as though you've taken a spiritual shower and cleansed yourself of all the blocks in these Sephirotic combinations so that when on the 50th day um, you are ready to actually receive your own experience of divine revelation, the energy can flow through you unimpeded. That's the desire, that's the goal, that's the theory. Some years when I've done this practice, I've had an extraordinary experience of this energy. Some years, you know, well, I do the best I can and there are still blocks because I'm not the Buddha yet, I'm not the Messiah, it's always gonna be that way. But it's still a profound experience, and I learned a lot about myself. And uh, one of the things that happened this year that was really an extraordinary uh, experience for me is that there was a group of uh, tarot uh, enthusiasts in Albuquerque. Uh, They have a meetup group, and they decided to read my book on a weekly basis uh, over the course of this period and check in with each other about their experiences with this self-examination. Uh, so that they had, as a group, a profound experience at the end. And they invited me to come after they were done and hear what they went through. And I have to say, it it brought me to tears. Mm. It made me feel like I I did what I came here to do. That, That my mission in life was to write this book, to be able to give people this profound experience. And I, I was so grateful to hear that from people. It, it was really moving.
0: Yeah, it, it really is a phenomenal book. I stumbled across it at one of my local bookstores and I remember picking it up and I just read a couple of pages and I'm like, I have to buy this book. Uh, and this was, you know, I think back in February uh, is when I first came across it. One of the things that I truly appreciate is, and you've already kind of, said this, uh, in a number of ways, you know, my approach with Tarot, uh, because a lot of people do just think that Tarot is for just divination and trying to read the future. Mm-hmm. But I always take it back to like the Oracle at Delphi and, you know, going into the, the, the sacred space that said, know thyself. And mm-hmm. my approach has always been, that's what it's really for. Yes. There are some times where it, can seem to be telling me things that may be happening or going to happen, but ultimately it's about self-work and self-knowledge and self-improvement. Ooh. So I, 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 truly appreciated that about your work. I think something else that is important for people is that this isn't a book of, well, this is what the six of cups means, you know, it's not, it's not a, you know, an encyclopedia of meaning, you know, it's not that kind of Tarot book. You do give meanings as you are meditating and reflecting on these combinations of cards, but it's like, it, 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 it's living in many ways. And sometimes you will have the same two cards, you know, you may have, I don't know, Um, uh, I don't know, Hode and Netsack and Netsack and Hode, right? Um, The order and
1: when you reverse the order, it changes the relationship.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, this is one of the things that I think for tarot people, this is one of the great values of the book, I think, is that with each card, because each card turns up at least 13 times Mm -hmm. in different combinations, you see how the meaning of the card lives in combination with other cards. Because when you get um, a a tarot book and it says, this means this, this means this, this means that, well, that's very flat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what you want is when you do a reading is that you want it to really live. You want it to sort of be connected in a way that feels um, alive. And when you can see how these cards affect each other, Mm -hmm and how they are related to things within you, all of a sudden, the cards you know, flat on a table feel dimensional and deeply connected to your own life. Uh, and then going back to the question of, of divination, you know, as I say, I, I do Tree of Life readings for people, and, and sometimes, you know, because they're asking, you know, many people come and they say, I'm at a crossroads in my life. I, I really don't know what I should be doing. Next, can you help give me some direction? And we go through the cards. And, um, and you know, the cards can give a, a sort of a snapshot. I, I sometimes call it a spiritual MRI of where you are right now. And uh, it, as I say, because it can show you where you're blocked. It can help you if you can see where you're blocked it can help you see past those blocks. You know, I I literally just did a reading for a woman who is working for an organization that um, she feels trapped by. Mm. And uh, and interestingly enough, uh, one of the first cards that came up was the devil. Mm. Uh, And in the devil card, you see that there are a couple of people who are chained to a block, but um, the chains around their necks, are so loose that they could lift them off and walk away. And part of the, the important meaning for this person I was reading for, is that you feel trapped, but it is an illusion. You can walk away at any time. Um, and, and, but, the, but most organizations want you to identify your future with them and not think for yourself, right? but those organizations don't have your uh, highest good uh, in mind. They're about perpetuating the organization. So you have to really uh, be aware of what's important for you on your path. And uh, so when you do this kind of work, when you do a reading like this, it can help sort of help you see where, what you can do to sort of free yourself of illusion. And then it helps you look at your choices and make those choices more consciously. It doesn't say, do this, do that, or you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger, but it does say in order to meet a tall, dark stranger, you need to do some work around these things. And then you will open up space in your life for something new.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Whenever I do readings for people, the most common comment I receive uh, mm-hmm. is, well, you just told me what I already know. <laughs> and actually
1: I, I before, before they say it, I, I usually say, so I'm just telling you what you already know, mm-hmm. but here's why it's important to hear it from me and to mm-hmm. see it in the cards. Right. Because it enables you to look at things from a distance it enables you to sort of look at your life and where you are objectively as though you're looking down on it from a height. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so that you can see the whole of it. And when you can do that, this gives you the freedom to choose.
0: Have you ever had the experience going through this? Is it fair to call it a ritual? The counting of the Omer? Yeah, um, okay. So have you ever had the experience as you're going through this and reflecting on these pairs of cards, where the pair of the day does seem to represent something that sort of rhymes for that day.
1: Oh yes, yeah, no, that that ha- uh, happens, you know, over the course of forty-nine days. You know, I would say once a week something like that happens. Oh, okay, uh, and you know, and and but it's a reflection because this is. Uh, a a reflection of my own inner psycho-spiritual processes Mm -hmm. inside, and of course, that's what I'm living outside. So if I have um, a problem in a relationship and it's a week where I'm looking at, or it's a day when two cards come up that are about relationship, it's not gonna be a surprise that those cards reflect my psycho-spiritual stuff that are happening right in front of me in this relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You cited the hermetic axiom of as above, so below, but I think uh, Jung a- added to that, you know, as within, so without. Yes, uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. You know, I, and I do appreciate the fact that you have people uh, reflect on their own interpretations of these cards. You do provide some questions, uh, for people to sort of reflect upon. Um, and my guess is that you might also encourage people to journal about this as they're going through this, um, process.
1: Oh, can I say, actually, uh, it was part of my goal to make the, the book also a journal, mm-hmm. but that would mean adding so many pages that the book would be, uh, you know 20 pounds yeah <laughs> and, uh, you know so you can just go out and buy your own journal and you know sit with the journal next to the book and do the work you know yeah, yeah. you don't need blank pages in this book but yes okay. journaling is very much a part of this work
0: okay very good um the the book uses the writer weight smith deck mm. uh to illustrate the various card combinations and the Reflections that you write are based on those. Yeah. I assume that any deck can be used.
1: Well, here's the thing maybe you know, <laughs> I, I have a, a bias mm-hmm. uh, in favor of decks that are, um, that take the Kabbalistic symbolism as a given so that it's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are decks, wonderful decks, beautiful decks, some of which I own because I own about 40 tarot decks. I collect Judaic decks and Kabbalistic decks, but I just got something called the Badass Tarot, mm. right? And there's hardly anything that you could think that's Kabbalistic about it. It's just a fun deck that you can use. I don't know that I would be able to use that. Uh, okay. Because I'm looking for um, the sephira because, in the writer Waite-Smith deck, because uh, Waite and Smith were in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and for them um, the tarot was an expression of Kabbalah, that Kabbalistic concepts are encoded into the imagery. Uh, and I think it's helpful if you learn some of this coding that it will activate something in you, right? Um, just as, uh, you know, I sometimes also refer to tarot cards as a Renaissance Rorschach test, right? You know, because you're going to look at the images and they awaken something in you. And, and, but these are often Kabbalistic concepts. And so if you're using something that's already connected to the system, I think it will work better. Uh, and there are a number of decks that fit that description that are not Waitsmith decks. You know, I'm not a big fan of of Aleister Crawley, um, uh, but his Toth deck is uh, based on Kabbalistic principle. And in some ways, um, his deck is a little more accurate Kabbalistically Mm -hmm. than uh, the Waitsmith deck. Not everywhere, but you know, for example, let's look at uh, pages versus princesses. You know, Wait put in pages instead of princesses, but Kabbalistically, that would be a princess, because this is connected to the Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God. And let's do a little side note on that for people who don't know about this in Kabbalah. You know, I said that uh, God is beyond gender. So one of the ways God presents or the divine presents in Kabbalistic uh, Judaism is as female. There is the face of the divine that is male, and there is the face that is female. And ultimately, you know, the divine is beyond both of those things, but we, when we enter into the world of duality, the divine splits into both. And part of our job as human beings is to theurgically reunite that couple.
0: Yeah, I, uh, use the Thoth deck, uh, quite a bit. And, uh, my favorite deck is a Thoth base deck that mm-hmm. is very rich in uh, kabbalistic imagery. Um, what is
1: that? I'm curious. Uh,
0: the Tabula Mundi deck.
1: I'll have to look for it. Uh,
0: it it's um, it's quite incredible. Um, uh, just a shout at the uh, artist is Mel Meline, mm-hmm. and she and T. Susie Chang have ah. a podcast, uh, Fortune's Wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, where they go into great detail about, this, this yeah,
1: great knowledge. these people Yeah.
0: Have. Yeah. And I learned so much from Tarot. Um, it was it, exponential uh, mm-hmm. over like a year, just using the Tabula Mundi deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things I was getting out of my question is it, the, the imagery in the writer waite Smith. And I, and I know that there are the connections with Kabbalah, but it also seemed to me that some decks, even if they have, uh, that lack pictures altogether, I'm thinking like the Mercedes, decks, mm. that it would be very difficult to do this work with that kind of deck.
1: Well, so let's actually now go back to uh, Renaissance Italy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and then of course, uh, 18th and 17th century France where we have Atea, you know, mm-hmm. Um, the guy who uh, was the, one of the first people to talk about tarot as a divi- for divination. Well, he was using the Tarot de Marseille. He didn't have images at all. He only had the minor arcana and the images on the pips of the, of the suit uh, symbols. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Ronald Decker actually referred to them as flashcards, mm. because when you see the number uh, you see, like the eight of and for Tarot to Marseille, it's the eight of coins. You know you're in the world of Asiya, so and you know that you are with the Sephirah of Hod because that is the eighth Sephirah. So that gives you the information that mm. you need to know. You don't you don't need to see an image if you already study this. Uh, if you haven't studied it, having the imagery certainly helps. Um, but I could use the Tower de Marseille now to be able to, you know, do this work. It's just that I like the images.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like the images too. Um, and Marseille is kind of inscrutable to me. But honestly, I haven't worked with it that much. So I'm curious, um, I don't want to ask this. Um, in the book, one of the other things that I appreciate, you know, we're talking about Kabbalah and we've mentioned Buddhism, but you also draw from a lot of the world's wisdom traditions. Oh yeah, which I think is um, uh, very helpful and appropriate and I- I- inclusive. and it makes it accessible to anyone of any spiritual tradition.
1: Well, you know, uh, living in the United States States, which is a, a, a Christian majority nation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was important to me that this be understandable to people who come from that tradition. And remember, as I pointed out, the period between Passover and Shavuot, that 50th day, is Pentecost, which is a Christian holiday, because the holiday of Pentecost, as it was established in the book of Acts, was the meeting of the apostles for a Shavuot, uh, what is called the Leil shavuot, an evening shavuot study session to experience revelation. And what happened to them? Revelation. They had tongues of flame come down so that they were all able to go out into the streets and speak in other languages to preach the gospel to other people. From, because particularly on shavuot, in Jerusalem, Jews from all over the Roman Empire come back um, because th- you're supposed to sort of go back for that holiday. But you know, they're coming from Greek. These are Jews who speak Greek. They're coming from Rome. They're Jews who speak Latin. So the apostles had to be able to go out and speak these languages to preach the gospel. And, um, and th- that's the story. Uh, and this is in fact the origin of course of, of Pentecostalists except in, in Acts these people actually were speaking a language uh, and because they were meant to sort of spread the good news. And I really wanted to point out that um, the Christian uh, holiday of Pentecost is well within traditional Jewish understanding of what happens on this holiday. And there is, and, and the counting of the Omer is in fact the technology, the spiritual technology to get, to get you to that place of having that experience of some kind of revelation. You know, I point out that there's a, a rabbi named Joseph Caro um, who was well known uh, on uh, the eve of Shavuot to be possessed by a magid, a spirit, uh, an angel as it were, who spoke through him. So this is sort of spiritual possession um, uh, but divine spiritual possession for teaching purposes. And, uh, and that's part of the possible experience for people, uh, on the 50th day. Uh, it's not anything that I have encountered yet, but I don't discount it as something that may happen in my experience.
0: Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that as well. I, you know, I teach, um, a course a community college class on the western western traditions you know the abrahamic traditions and um i, I had never made the connection between the jewish tradition you know the Pente- you know passover and pentecost with the christian and it made so much sense with you know you know the uh, the israelites gathered at the mountain and receiving mm-hmm. um, the, the message from god or mm-hmm. the spirit and the Disciples experiencing it as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely going to start uh, including that in all of my lectures because I think it's it's important to note. Um, Another spiritual
1: tradition I want to bring in for just a second is the Eastern traditions in Buddhism, for mm-hmm. example. After someone dies uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, one right. spends forty nine days in the Bardo, mm-hmm. before the spirit is able to go on. Mm-hmm. Right. 49 days seems to be, from a spiritual technology point of view, an important number, an important amount of time to be able to work through something.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The way the counting of the Omer is designed is to actually help you do this consciously.
0: Right. Now, the way that you present this in the book, you actually give a couple of different options. So someone can do this from you know specifically during that holiday period mm-hmm. and you would choose just one of the suits to work with mm-hmm. or you could decide each day which suit you want to work with mm-hmm. you could work with once and you can extend it beyond the this 50 days so you can do one suit do the next suit do the next suit and do the next suit I would imagine it would be possible for someone. uh, They wouldn't be able to necessarily tap into the power of the morphic field. Uh, But if someone just picks up a copy of the book and says, well, no, you know, that happened a month ago. I don't want to wait 11 months. I want to start now uh, that they could actually start right now.
1: The book came out in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And as soon as people got it, they started doing the work Mm -hmm. so that, um, you know, two and a half months later, uh, you know, I was getting uh, emails from people who had done this work, saying, "Wow, this was incredible. Thank you for uh, giving me this uh, experience. And now that I've done it, from you know, je- you know, beginning of January to um, you know, the end of February, I'm going to pick it up again and do the next suit during the actual period. But You can really do it at any time uh, because every moment is an opportunity to
0: connect to the divine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like the idea on one level, this is individual work, Mm -hmm. but this notion of connection runs through the book and it's not just connection with the divine, but connection with community.
1: It's, this is very important, you know, in, in Judaism, uh, you know, you cannot do certain kinds of prayer services without there being at least 10 people to hold the energy. Um, you know, uh, all human beings are a reflection of the divine. Uh, you know, we are all made in the divine image. And so it is essential that our relationships reflect that consciousness uh, and so that if one does this work, uh, you have to really approach other people as an expression of God and that your relationship with that person is holy. Uh, and so, you know, the, what is your obligation in community? What is your obligation to justice? What is your obligation to charity? What is your obligation to healing the sick? Um, you know, all of the things that we are told to do in these holy books are actually, as you do this work, it, it becomes really clear that this is the path. And, uh, and the path is doing this work. Uh, one of the great uh, medieval uh, uh, books of um, the path was the imitation of Christ, mm-hmm. right? It's about how do I live a Christ like life? Well, this means, you know, going to working with the poor, working with the sick, right? It, it is about being generous. And um, this is one of, for me, one of the great heartbreaks uh, of Christianity uh, because it, it is a religion of such beautiful teaching that um, its own um, adherents uh, you know, fail again and again. Uh, and I'm, you know, thinking about, you know, for example, uh, you know, you think about just the history of the Southern Baptists, you know, the reason the Southern Baptists came into existence, they broke away from the whole Baptist convention because they were going to defend slavery. Mm. Well, if you think of human beings as all in God's image, slavery is completely, you know, not kosher. Um, and, 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 you know, the Bible itself is a Bronze Age book, so it doesn't always reflect the values and the understanding that we have today. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it is this, and you know, every religion falls short and every religious teacher falls short uh, because we are all human, none of us are perfect. This is also part of the teaching right? Creation itself is fractured, is broken, and our job is to help repair it and to repair ourselves as well. You know, uh, one of the great uh, teachings in, in uh, there's a, a part of the Talmud called the Perkei Avot, the wisdom of the ancestors, and one of the rabbis says, it is not your job to complete the work but you are not free from being obligated to do it, right? So you will never be finished, you will never be perfect, but you have to aspire to that. And ultimately, hopefully through all of the incarnations, one will then return to the divine home that we all come from.
0: Yeah, and I I like that as well, and the notion that the acknowledgement that this is a broken world and that we're all broken individuals as well. But I think that that can be acknowledged and accepted without insisting upon this sort of sinfulness, you know, because there's this notion of, you know, that we have a responsibility to each other and to ourselves to aim as best as we can.
1: Aim that's yeah. the word because In Judaism, there is no word for sin. Mm -hmm. The word that we use is chet, and chet is a term from archery. It means that you have missed the mark. That's all, right? Mm -hmm. You know, your goal was to hit the bullseye? Okay, you were a few, you know, rings out. You keep trying and you keep working at it. That is the goal. We understand, and perfection is actually beyond human ability it's just not going to happen but that's okay um it is the trying that is the important thing
0: yeah and it also occurs to me that in the book you know since you're focused on the sephirot you know beginning with he said you know number four mm-hmm. that first realm those first three sephirot aren't of this world You know, and isn't it in Kabbalistic thought that, you know, between those three and then the bottom seven, there's like the abyss. And the focus here is on the world that we can experience. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, So, you know, one of the, I was thinking about this the other day and how human beings have a limited sensorium, right? You know, we can't see ultraviolet, we cannot see infrared, but there are animals who can. You know, dogs can hear sounds that we cannot. Um, You know, there are beings, creatures, that sense the world differently than we do. And our senses are devised to actually weed out all of the things that we cannot deal with. This is all we can cope with, right? And so that if the divine energy really hit us full, we would be blasted, our consciousness would be gone, right? So our sensorium is limited. And this means we are limited in our able to uh, express this. So th- those three are beyond our sensorium. That doesn't mean ultimately that we can't get there because there is work to get there, but it happens when one is doing inner work and disconnected from one's body. Mm-hmm. It is so that your senses, your bodily senses are shut down so that your psychic spiritual senses are open to receive the light, the full light. You know, there is a, uh, an 11th sefirah, uh, which uh, some people talk about more than others. I don't talk about it in mm-hmm. the book because it's not part of the practice that we're, we're going through. But one of the things that one does is if one is working the paths up, because the the counting of the Omer is working down. If you're working up, when when you get to Chesed, if you've done it well enough, what happens is the Sephirah of Daat opens. Mm. And this is on the sort of chakra overlay. This is the third eye. This is where all of a sudden one has spiritual sight. It's why uh, Rabbi Isaac Luria uh, was able to look at his disciples and see on their forehead the history of all their past lives. Mm. Um, you know, when one has this sight, it gives you the ability to be able to see beyond what most people are capable of seeing. Some people are born with some of this ability. There are many people in the world who have psychic abilities. And uh, the, the best thing is to be able to find a path in whatever tradition resonates for you, if you have these abilities, as a way of working with them to take yourself farther and to be able to use them in a way that is in service and holy.
0: Uh, for other people. One of my personal, uh, I don't know, it's my sort of soapbox, is that I feel that any spiritual practice needs to be grounded in this world. You know, having that connection is awesome, but especially given our current moment, you know, this is where we need to be. And this is what our focus has to be on, because not only And I think this is really relevant to the Kabbalah. But again, you know, not only do we have to heal ourselves, but we have a physical world that we have to heal.
1: Right. And a psychological world. Mm -hmm. You know, I refer to this uh, in the book. uh, Kabbalistically, this is called the Briatic Defense, that one flees to the upper realm as a way of avoiding the lower realm. Mm -hmm. In psychology, that is called spiritual bypassing. And we all know people who are spiritual bypassers who are living on pink clouds. Everything is wonderful. And if something negative happens, they just chant and they try to not experience their own anger or anything that they're going through because those feelings and what's actually happening is too threatening. But that's where the gold is. That's the work. That's why we are embodied. This life, and and this is the thing within Judaism, There is, there's no duality between matter and spirit, Um, and this, there's no sort of sinfulness or, you know, or feeling separate from the divine by being embodied. This life is a gift, and we are meant to use it to sort of experience the whole of reality.
0: Well, I, I, I think your book is a gift um, to oh, help my. people. <laughs> I really do. It's, it's probably one of the best Tarot books I've read. Uh, it, it really was phenomenal. Um, I had um, dinner. I have a very good friend uh, who's uh, she describes herself as a secular Jew. Um, and I'm always doing tarot readings for her, and I, I told her, I'm like, no, you have to get this book <laughs> because she's looking for something for her own spiritual journey, mm-hmm. and I think that what I'm going to do is offer to go through with go through it with her, mm-hmm. uh, because getting back to that um, working in community. Uh, you also noted that in Kabbalah, there was this tradition of two people studying together, yes. which I found very beautiful.
1: Actually, it's, it's in, in Judaism as a whole. If you go into any yeshiva, uh, mm-hmm. the students are divided into twos. Uh, you have a chaver, a friend, a spiritual friend, and you work in chavruta a pair, um, a, as a way of examining each other's souls mm-hmm. and sort of challenging each other to go deeper in ways that are loving. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I think too often the spirituality tends to be a bit narcissistic um, Mm. and uh, I I, I do believe it has to happen in community and with others. So uh, I know that we're going to start running out of time here, uh, but I wanted to ask you for anyone who might be interested in learning a little bit more about Kabbalah. Where would you direct them?
1: Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with a book called God in My Body mm. by uh, Rabbi J. Michelson. Uh, it, is, it is about, it is, it is deeply Kabbalistic and it is non dual. Mm. Right? Uh, and so it's about all of this living in you. Mm. Uh, I'd say start there, start, start with something practical and grounded. Uh, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, I could mention lots of other books. I've been looking at a whole bookcase here and I've been <laughs> blind over there. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm afraid of, you know, bringing up something that is so complicated because yeah. I've been doing this for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, Jay's book, it will be exactly the, the right thing, the right way to
0: start. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I, you know, my background is academic. So when I was a graduate student, I took a course in Kabbalah. So I can always recommend, you know, those kind of books. I'm like, oh, yes, read Gershom Sholem. But that doesn't really get you into the heart of the practice at all. So I'm always curious to ask people who practice this where to go. Yeah,
1: um, Gershom Scholem essential, a great scholar. And, and, you know, because I am... I mean, one of the things you probably noticed, and people may be surprised when they get this book, there are more than 200 footnotes. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read the footnotes, yeah. but it was important for me because I am a scholarly kind of person. Mm-hmm. And the history and the groundedness in history of this is important to me. You know, there are so many uh, tarot books which make all of these wild claims, which have no evidence whatsoever. And it's important to me to be able to show the receipts as the kids, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, that, as I say, I, I, it's important to me, but I, I don't think that anybody needs that if they're just starting out. Uh, right. The academic stuff I love, and that's why I'm sort of studying all this Renaissance stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's for me, you know, because I, I love it. Um, it's not part of the practice. It's just part of my scholarly detective game that I love. But uh, it's not part of the practice.
0: Well, you know, it, it could be. the uh, <laughs> I'm thinking there's a I, I think it was Alan Watts um, there's a quote that Alan Watts asked Joseph Campbell what he did as a spiritual practice, and Campbell's response was, "I underline books. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: god, I can I can actually one <laughs> right over here that's filled <laughs> with underlining. I was yeah. just,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. So, well, um, uh, where is the best place for people to find out more uh, about your work uh, if they're curious?
1: Yeah. Uh, my website is gatesoflighttarot.com, all one word, Gates of Light Tarot. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram as at Gates of Light Tarot. Uh, on Facebook, there is a page for the book. Okay. Uh, it's Facebook slash tarot gates. Um, and of course, you can go to bookshop.org, uh, where you can buy a copy of the book from a, uh, an organization that support, supports independent bookstores instead of uh, sending uh, Jeff Bezos into space.
0: Yes, uh, I actually always include a link to uh, bookshop.org um, in the show notes and on YouTube. Um, yeah, because yeah. If you read
1: a book and want to write a view, review on Amazon, I won't say I won't yeah. say no.
0: Yeah, yeah, but we certainly don't need to make um, Jeff Bezos any richer than what he already is. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you so much for your time and for your work.
1: The opportunity, I, you know, I, as you as you know, this is work that I think is of benefit to others, and so any opportunity that I have to help other people find this work and do it so that they can sort of increase their connection to the divine and to others in the, that they know in their relationships,
0: that's a good thing. It, it is a good thing. And it's desperately needed right now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Mark, thank you so much. And that's a wrap on episode six of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I really, truly appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. We are currently streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon, and a few others. Your reviews really do help, and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. Also, please consider making a donation via Patreon by becoming a sustaining member or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find links for both in the video description or show notes your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.